K-A-L-W. We really try to nourish and heal some of our past wounds and trauma. On International Women's Day, we ask, what does feminism mean for today's generation of women? For Maisa Murar, it's about liberation and support. That's really how we showcase our feminism. Like, how do we show up for each other? Palestinian-American and feminist. Then we hear how women drummers unite in the East Bay. The drum wrongly was personified as a male instrument. We all know that the drum is a woman. The heartbeat. Plus, we get an update on Tesla's troubles. Gee, wonder what happens when you get serious competition from traditional automakers and other startups who are building a product which is as good, if not better, than what you're building on your own. That's coming up. I'm Hannah Baba, and this is Cross Currents. It's International Women's Day today, so later on we're going to hear some stories about women and feminism. But first, we're going to start with some news about one of the Bay Area's most high-profile businesses. For Tesla, the last few months have been a rocky ride. Tesla is voluntarily recalling more than 360,000 vehicles, warning that its experimental driver assistance software may cause crashes. Now investigators are looking into a series of accidents involving the high-tech company. And just over the weekend, Tesla recalled an additional 3,000 vehicles for what they call loose bolts. Meanwhile, company stock prices have plunged after founder Elon Musk bought the social media giant Twitter, creating more turmoil for the electric vehicle company. KELW News Editor Sunni Khaled spoke with industry expert Greg Morrison of the website Bumper to Bumper about Tesla's latest controversies. Greg, we are speaking a few days after Tesla announced a recall of 360,000 vehicles in the United States, almost its entire fleet. Explain to me why this was done and what this means not only for Tesla drivers, but for consumers. Well, Tesla, like other manufacturers, is allowed to self-certify autonomous driving technology. However, feds looked at it and said, wait a minute, Tesla, you've had a number of incidents involving collisions and accidents with your self-driving vehicles using your self-driving technology. We think something is wrong here. Pull it back. Let's review it. And then we'll decide whether or not it is safe enough to use on the road. Traditionally, an auto brand will self-certify. The vehicle will turn left if you turn the turn signal and turn the wheel. And Tesla is not the only one. Any company can do that. And to do that and to save a lot of drama, they will do that on a self-certification of an import. Tesla decided to do that on the vehicles manufactured and assembled here in the United States. I call it an example of automotive arrogance by the industry. But yes, we know how good our vehicles are. And we'll test them and we'll tell you they're safe. And you'll take our word for it. That's not always the case, because when they're doing their testing and certification, it is usually in a somewhat controlled environment so that they're going to get the results that they want doing that. It is not unusual for manufacturers to certify steering components, lighting components, other parts in vehicle functions and say, yeah, we're fine. We did it on our test track and work. We drove it around town near our test track. We're good. And for the most part, most manufacturers don't have that as a problem and doesn't come back to bite them. But for Tesla to jump into this space, especially fully autonomous driving, that's a big step. And you have to understand, there are only a limited number of states that allow autonomous driving vehicles on their public highways. California, Nevada, I believe Arizona to a degree. 
So you really got to be real careful and meet a tough standard when you're doing that. Well, Greg, we're here in the Bay Area, and Tesla is, of course, founded here in the Bay Area. We've had a couple of spectacular accidents, one over the Thanksgiving weekend, where we had one of these full self-driving beta Tesla vehicles plowed into another car, came to a complete stop on the Bay Bridge. And just a few days ago, a Tesla driver was killed after his car plowed into a fire truck. What does that mean for Bay Area drivers? Well, folks in the Bay Area where Tesla was born and has been embraced should be a little bit nervous and concerned. Anytime you turn over the function of a moving vehicle that weighs three to four tons down a public highway, you turn over all the operating functions to it, take your hands off, take your feet off the pedals, something would make you very nervous, just out of human nature. We have been taught how to move a vehicle from behind the wheel of the controls for more than 100 years. And now we're getting into a space where turning it over and trusting a computer, something's going to go wrong because software has not been approved by all 50 states. The federal government is still taking a very hard look at it. What are the factors that could influence it? Could it be a bad software design? Could it be interference from another vehicle? Because at the same time, these vehicles have what's called V2V, vehicle-to-vehicle technology. They can talk to each other. There are a myriad of things that are going on in this space that will take a while to learn. Go back to the days when automobiles first started coming out with turn signals, especially the exterior mounted ones that would flash. It took a while for other drivers to figure out, oh, that guy's getting ready to switch lanes on. That woman's getting ready to make a right turn. The drivers had to adapt their technique to make sure that they understood what was going on. But you're trying to get a machine to say, okay, I'm going to make this turn here. Here's my signal. I'll make a turn. Oh, there's a pedestrian in the way. That means another set of safety protocols have to take over the operation. There's an opportunity there for confusion. Machines can be as confused as humans can be during crisis situations or when snap judgments are required. Well, the problems that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration are posing for Tesla over the full-service driving beta are one thing. We've had several problems that the company, which is producing the car of the future, is having recently. We've seen a major fall in the stock price. Tesla's also announced that it's cutting the prices for some of its vehicles, which has enraged some people who have to pay full price for the vehicles. And of course, Elon Musk, who's the new owner of Twitter, has come under even more criticism. Where does this leave Tesla right now as a company? And of course, they've also been dealing with a series of legal suits by former and present employees alleging racial discrimination. The question then becomes, which piece of poison do you want to talk about? In Tesla's case, the lawsuits by former and current employees about discrimination are things that can't go away by a statement from Elon Musk. The company also has to look at the fact that several insurance companies are now saying that if you have an accident in a Tesla, in a lot of states, they just totally scrap the car because the parts are very difficult to come by, which is very scary if you're spending eighty, ninety thousand. 90000 But get back to your question about the price drop, they've got competition for the first time. Gee, wonder what happens when you get serious competition from traditional automakers and other startups who are building a product which is as good, if not better, than what you're building on your own. Tell me about some of Tesla's competitors in the EV field. You've got the uh, Ford Mach-E, or the Mustang Mach-E, whichever way you call it. The Chevrolet Equinox is coming out with a fully electric version. Mercedes-Benz has a series of fully electric sedans that are spectacular 
and how they deliver the driving experience. What does this mean for the stock price? What does this mean for stockholders in Tesla? Stockholders are always nervous because they want to make the most for their money. I get that. But if I was a Tesla stockholder for the last five years, I've made my money. So be patient. You're going to take a hit. It's going to be competitive out there. And your brand is going to have to come out with some really unique products. For the longest time, for example, Tesla has been promising us the Cybertruck. The Cybertruck. From my perspective, I believe I'll see a Cybertruck as soon as I see pigs fly. Elon Musk promised this dramatic-looking vehicle, but they keep pushing it back because they're realizing it takes more than a notion to build a truck like that. The future is now, right? The future is yesterday. That was Greg Morrison, owner and executive editor of Bumper to Bumper, speaking about the latest developments at Tesla with KLW News editor Sunni Khalid. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hannah Baba. Today, we're celebrating International Women's Day. And our first stop on the celebration is in Berkeley, where we're going to explore the meaning of feminism for a young generation of Arab-American women in the Bay Area. Berkeley was instrumental in creating a national women's movement in the U.S. from suffrage in the late 1890s and the gender revolution in the 60s and 70s. But since those times, there have been diverse iterations and evolutions of feminist ideals that define what it means today. I do this work from a place of love. A love for the world, a love for one another, a love for all of our children, a love for our future, and a love for myself. This is an event recently held at Mudraker's Cafe in Berkeley. It was called Fields of Red Poppies, Rituals of Loss and Survival, and it was co-hosted by the Palestinian Feminist Collective, a group that's defining feminism on its own terms and ties it to liberation from sexual, gendered, and colonial violence in Palestine. This is a night of getting together to mourn those killed by Israeli forces back home. And for them, to heal together as women is a core part of feminist struggle. I spoke with the co-founder of the collective, Maisa Morar, and first I asked her to tell me about some historical figures in the Arab women's movement who inspire her. So one in particular is May Ziada. So May was a poet, she was a journalist, she was a writer, an educator, and probably one of the first feminists that was born in Palestine. Her mother was, I believe, Lebanese. And she was really important in like the establishment of the Arab women's revolt and women's movement. And so that's somebody that I'd want to lift up. And then also somebody that I can always think of in like growing up is Dilal al-Mughrabi. Dilal was like a freedom fighter. And she was also somebody that was like on the ground. And so when I think about these women's stories and uplifting who they were, I think about how important it was to not just memorialize really their death, but their life as well and their legacies. 
we wanted to create like a women's desk and non-gendered non-gender conforming desk for organizers and how do we get Palestinians really across the diaspora together and to really talk about feminism when it comes to Palestine and really kind of taking that word back because that word has been really kind of whitewashed in a way when people think of feminists they think of you know like white women feminists you know there was an event uh, recently here in the Bay Area, and it was called Fields of Red Poppies. Can you tell me about that, and what does the poppy symbolize? So red poppies is a symbol for the Palestinian martyrs. So the red poppy is a Palestinian flower, and it's been long known to be a symbol for Palestinian martyrs because in the fields that they grow in is usually areas of where there has been a lot of massacres in the past, kind of similar to sabar, which are cactus. So when they pop up in those fields, it's like a commemoration for our martyrs. And so we labeled the name of the event field of Red Poppies to share the struggles that we as Palestinians and as women and mothers are like faced with on a daily struggle. Right. And you also touched on this, but I want to ask you about this idea of taking back feminism and that feminism isn't necessarily kind of this Western form of feminism So how is Palestinian feminism similar or different? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think something that has been really great in this process is learning all of the historical ways that women have been a part of our organizing struggle. I'm talking like way back into the beginning of the 20th century. So when I look at that, And I see, for example, like the General Union of Palestinian Women or women's organizations that like started in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem and really across Palestine, Arab women, Palestinian women. When I look at that, I'm like, this has always been at the forefront of our struggle. Like this isn't something new. It's like that feminism has always been there. You know, we have a lot of motherhood in our community and we have a lot of nourishing You know, something that we as feminists do is that we really try to nourish and heal some of our past wounds and trauma. And even when it comes to like organizing spaces, and that's what's something that's very significantly different in this space than I have been a part of ever before. And so like, that's really how we showcase our feminism. Like, how do we show up for each other? For me, that's the definition of it, too. The trauma of being so far away It feels like a double trauma when you're not there to grieve with the people on the ground. Lots of people here in the Bay Area are tied to places where there's a lot of trauma happening. And so I'm wondering for you, to what extent is this movement you're creating empowering and bringing visibility to the issue, but also healing for you? Mm, Yeah. Yeah, it's true that it is almost like a double trauma because we see all the news online. We see them on our phones. You know, there's moments where we're just like, we want to know what's happening, what's going on, what's like what's really happening on the ground. And even the bit of news that we get is probably a fraction of what is actually happening. And so having a space like the PFC is 
really empowering in a way that like we offer that news to each other all the time and also offering the space for us to in ways like just kind of be able to heal with each other like even before our meetings and things like that we just talk about what's going on how we're feeling what are we doing because your lives are going on here you're going to work i'm still a full-time clinician um like i'm still having to deal with my life on the daily but also figuring out what's going on back home. And I feel like having a space where I don't feel disconnected is in a way healing. Even as people in the diaspora, we still have an obligation and a responsibility for our people. Our cousins are being put in jail. Our own family members are being martyred. If they're not giving up, then we should not give up either. And I feel like if anything, that fuels us to keep going because the struggle continues. That's Maisa Morar, co-founder of the Palestinian Feminist Collective, and that interview was produced by Alia Taqiyad-Din. This is Cross Currents. I'm Hannah Baba. I find it hard to say the things I want to say the most. Next, we're going to hear about the challenge of growing up multicultural in America. It's a segment from our Bay Poets series. Youth Speaks poet Yamini Jane reads her poem, Coconut. 27 years in the end of my mind, but old into the thought of another time. To be a coconut is to be whitewashed. So Americanized, only your skin carries the evidence of your true roots. The hot chocolate surrounding your marshmallowy center, my skin did not suffer through centuries of oppression and hate to lose itself to a goddamn skin lightning cream. To be a coconut is to realize that your vowels don't sound right in Hindi. My mouth curls around foreign sounds, hoping that if the brace is tight enough, then maybe they'll start to fit. Fit in the same way English has made its home on my tongue, in my mouth, my throat, my soul. To be a coconut is to live torn between two countries, two separate identities clashing to be seen. It is a war waged not with bullets, but with the people I'm surrounded by. The silks and spices in my veins don't mix well with burgers and ripped jeans. I'm walking a tightrope on fire and hoping I don't fall. To be a coconut is to try and reach for the stars even though you've been destined to fall since the day you were first born up on that tree. To be a coconut is to try and squeeze two voices out of me with one throat, to feel my lungs burning in protest because they thought they would only have one soul to work for. To be a coconut is to douse my mind in gasoline, burning faster for the soul's sake of burning brighter because I'll know I'll never be enough for either world to accept me as I am now. That was Youth Speaks poet Yamini Jane reading her poem Coconut. She's a Youth Speaks Teen Poetry Slam semi-finalist. You can find more local poets online at kelw.org slash baypoets.
You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hanat Baba. When it comes to music made by women, there's a long history of men deciding what instruments are appropriate for women. A lot has changed, but some cliches still persist, like women playing the drums. But conga drummer Carolyn Brandy wants to change that. She's been playing drums for more than 40 years in San Francisco's Dyke Marches. She also accompanies other musicians from around the world on their records. And most importantly, she encourages other women to grab the drumsticks or simply use their hands and make some noise through her organization, Women Drummers International. My name is Carolyn Brandy. I'm the creator and executive director of Women Drummers International. And our mission is to promote the message of the drum for women and girls, a message that is about health, it's about community, it's about coming together. The drum, wrongly, was personified as a male instrument. We all know that the drum is a, is a woman. <laughs> the drum is female. The heartbeat. You know, that's what we pass on to our children. That's the first sound we hear. It's, it's from a female. It's from the mother. I started playing conga drums in 1968. I was a student at the University of Washington, and I happened to be down at the Pike Street Market that a lot of people know about. They often have musicians on the street. They're playing congas and bongos and Cuban music. And I really thought, wow, I really like this. So after the they finished their set or whatever, I went up to one of the guys and told him how much I enjoyed the performance and really liked the music. He said, well, we're giving a class at the... University of Washington. So I started going to that class, and that was the end of... (laughs) That was the beginning of my destiny, I guess. The drum represents migrations of people. The drum represents the diaspora. The drum is an incredible instrument. When you start learning to play drums, one door opens up to two doors. Those two doors opens up to four doors. Those four doors open up to eight doors. And it's a never-ending. It doesn't end. Art and music is the salvation, really. Our arts will save our identity. Because maybe we don't speak the same language, but we can be moved by the same piece of music. And you know what? I'll tell you what. Like right now here in the United States, I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American. I have Native American blood, and I'm my ancestors are in this soil. But we're going through a really hard time right now with this election and everything. And yet in all, I've been very upset about the whole thing. But when I go, I have classes every day. 
When we start playing those drums, I forget all about that, and I'm transported to a, a place of calm and peace. It's medicine. It takes me out of that, all that fighting and all that's going on, and it takes me to a place of healing. Alexandra produced that story in 2016, and applications for Carolyn's annual Born to Drum Women's Drum Camp will be opening the first week of April. For more information, go to KLW.org. Cross Currents, I'm Hannah Baba. On International Women's Day, we're continuing to hear the voices of women. Next, we're going to hear about a family matriarch stuck between place and culture. It's an episode from KALW's literary podcast, New Arrivals, a pocket-sized book tour with Bay Area authors. Suzanne Parry lives in Atherton. She reads from her new book, In the Time of Our History. It's about a large Iranian-American family of immigrants, their American-born children, and a third generation of young refugees. I'll read one of my favorite parts, where the family's matriarch is trying to decide whether to stay in San Francisco with her daughter or to return to the East Coast and her traditional husband. It was so hard to figure out what she wanted without considering everyone else. She couldn't seem to separate her desires from what was best for the others. She didn't know her own mind. She'd been raised to accept the duty of self-sacrifice. Just by watching, she understood that a woman's life belonged to others. Even among the housewives of America who thought themselves so free, this was true. In their hearts, they belonged to others. And perhaps it was not such a terrible thing. Perhaps it was simply the natural way of humans. And perhaps it was unfair to expect to change this about herself so late in life. That was Suzanne Parry reading from her book, In the Time of Our History. It came out in January. New Arrivals is produced by Lisa Morehouse. For Cross Currents, I'm Hannah Baba.